Okay, we're continuing our study looking at Joseph's life here in the book of Genesis. Last week, we saw in Genesis 37 that someone is missing. There contains no reference to God whatsoever in Genesis chapter 37. And we noted that's often the way it is for us. Often we don't sense God's presence. We don't see His hand of intervention, especially it seems when things seem to be going wrong. We're going through a difficult time in our life. You might feel like you're abandoned, you're alone. Where is God? My friends, let me remind you, when things go bad and life just seems to come crushing down in your life, it doesn't mean that God has forsaken you. In fact, the book of Hebrews promises that Jesus, Jesus says there, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So the opposite is actually true. He hasn't forsaken you. You're actually the object of his attentive presence. And in Genesis 39, it reminds us of the providential presence of God throughout distressing developments taking place in Joseph's life. So, hopefully you remember what happened in chapter 37. We move on to chapter 39. Look at verse 1. So remember, Joseph's brother sold him into slavery. He goes down to Egypt. And so now here's Joseph. He's in Egypt. Chapter 39, verse 1. It says, Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. Now these verses communicate the blessing that you can experience from God when you maintain a right attitude toward God Himself and toward the circumstances that He brings into our lives. See, just when things seem to be going smoothly here, the Holy Spirit introduces us to yet another providential relocation. Uh, just like the last providential relocation, it accomplished, uh, it's accomplished through the evil actions of wicked people. Joseph's brothers were, were sinning against him by, by selling him into slavery. But nevertheless, it was, it was a necessary relocation if God is going to fulfill his words that we heard about in Joseph's dreams. So let's, let's just see what happens here, starting in verse 7. We're going to see this providential relocation. Verse, look at verse 7. It says that after a time... His master's wife, that's Potiphar's wife, cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is no greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife." How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her. 
to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day, when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house were there in the house, she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came into me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us, came in to me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. We'll stop there for the moment. As we've been doing in Joseph's life, there's a number of timeless principles that we can learn from the book of Genesis. And so let's look at some of these timeless principles, particularly dealing with God's guidance and his governing hand over all of his creation. Number one, we see here God may allow us to be falsely accused and unjustly criticized. Joseph's reaction here uh, to being wrongfully imprisoned on false trumped-up charges just puts me in awe of Joseph. How many of you would respond in a godly way if somebody like Mrs. Potiphar did this to you? And you're put in prison for doing what was right. You look at Joseph here, there's no complaining, There's at least not in the scripture anyway. <laughs> Maybe in his heart there's stuff going on, I don't know. But it appears. No complaining, no grumbling, no whinging, whining going on. There's no anger, He's, he, there's no bitterness apparently that is poisoning his spirit. We don't see that. And so in the face of his suffering, he's clearly trusting God. In fact, look what it says in verse 21. <clears throat> verse 21 says, But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. Whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. So those verses there we just read introduced to us another timeless principle. Here it is. God gives us favor with those of his choosing. God gives us favor with those of his choosing. I like the way uh, Matthew Henry, the the old preacher, commentator from hundreds of years ago, he commented on this passage. He put it this way. 
A good man will do good wherever he is and will be a blessing even in bonds and banishment. End quote. And that's the way it should be. If the Holy Spirit resides within you, and the Holy Spirit is working in you, shouldn't His fruit come out of you? <laughs> Absolutely. So we move on to chapter 40. We find Joseph's in prison. We don't see these dreams coming to fruition yet. So you might, some people wonder, if you don't know this story, what is God up to? Well, look at verse 5, chapter 40, verse 5. One night, they both dreamed, that is, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers, who were with him in custody in his master's house, Why are your faces downcast today? And they said to him, We have had dreams, and there's no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. These verses demonstrate the genuineness of our faith, how that affects our attitude toward affliction. And our attitude toward affliction then affects our behavior in the face of the affliction. You'll see this next little slide here. Hopefully it makes sense to you. Uh, we, we want faith. We want to believe and we want to trust in God no matter what comes our way. But for, for Joseph, we see that, that the faith affected his attitude toward the affliction that came in his life. And that affected his behavior as he was facing that affliction. Now, did you see the key there? The key to our behavior is our attitude. Our attitude. And the key to our attitude is our faith. So even in the midst of personal injustice, we see Joseph displays a self-forgetfulness, if you will, that it's just expressing itself in a genuine concern for the needs of others. He's been unjustly put in prison, but yet he still cares about these other people. He's caring about their needs. And so he demonstrates another principle of God's providence. Here it is, number three, that God gifts us to minister to others. You're not here just for yourself. He gifts you to minister to others. So just when we think God is going to get Joseph out of prison, the story hits another unanticipated roadblock. Boom! You think, you know, it's, it's a great story, isn't it? Look what happens here. Verse 14. Verse 14. Uh, so Joseph says in verse 14, Only remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house or this prison. Uh, for I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews. And here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. So after Joseph showed great compassion and extraordinary spiritual gifts here, how did the butler repay him? So he interprets the, their dreams. The butler goes back to Pharaoh. 
How is Joseph repaid? Well, look at verse 23. Verse 23 says, Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. <laughs> Man. Just when he, th- he was... Here, we, we, some people would think, he, okay, finally, he's going to get out of prison. Now, apparently, the butler, by the way, forgot Joseph for two years. Because if you look at chapter 41, verse 1, notice it says, After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. So, and then he, and then here's the opportunity. This leads us to the next principle, number four, that God may allow our suffering to be prolonged, our gifts and abilities to go unnoticed, and our deeds to be forgotten, sometimes for a very long time. But think about the importance of timing here. Is God's timing perfect in this situation? What if Joseph had been remembered immediately by this butler? Suppose the butler had spoken for him, and Joseph had been promptly released from prison. and didn't have to wait two years. He probably would have tried to return home, I would guess. But God didn't want Joseph to go home. God had a great work he wanted Joseph to do. Think about that in in our own lives. Have you ever felt like Joseph? I mean, my friends, when we feel forgotten and our sufferings seem like they go unnoticed, our labors seem to be unappreciated by people, our gifts just don't seem to be being used of God and, and by others, we need to remember that our experience is not unique. There's lots of other people who have gone before you who are that exact same way. Lots of people who've suffered very long time. Gifts and abilities have gone unnoticed. Deeds are forgotten. But may I remind you that God's timing is perfect. People may forget us, but God never forgets. God never fails to take notice. Never. So here we have Joseph. After two more years of being forgotten, undeserved years in prison, finally Joseph's time's come, or should we say that God's time for Joseph has finally come? It's time for him to be remembered. It's time for him to be released and providentially relocated yet again. Look what happens in chapter 41, verse 9. Remember, Pharaoh had a dream. He can't interpret it. But God can. It says, verse 9, Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. When he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. 
Well, this sets the stage for principle number five. God causes us to be remembered and recognized in His timing, and He lifts us to minister to others. Well, get back to Joseph here. Sometimes it's important for us to kind of back up and get a kind of a big, a big picture, a wide-angle view sometimes of what, what God is doing. When the story began, remember Joseph was about 17 years old. He had a dream, a couple dreams. Joseph, as a 17-year-old boy with a dream waiting to just happen, uh, there was this divine dream promise indicated that God had big plans ahead for Joseph. He firmly believed them. In fact, he told his brothers and his father. However, how was God going to get Joseph into this position that he talked about? How's he going to get him there? Now, you might assume that God means that God's means would involve kind of like climbing up the stairs, a number of gradual steps going up. And if you think that way, you would be wrong, because God's means are not always up. In fact, for Joseph, it was actually a number of gradual steps down. Let me just give you kind of a big picture of what's happening in Joseph's life. First of all, we see Joseph was hated by his brothers. Here's all the steps on the screen here for you. Number two, nearly murdered. Obviously, he would have never become prime minister of Egypt if that had happened, but he was cast into a pit. Then he was sold into slavery, gone, going down to a foreign land called Egypt. He was falsely accused by his master's wife and in prison, forgotten for two years in the prison, and finally exalted to the throne of Egypt. Hmm. That's not how we would usually have worked that one out, would we? <laughs> now, we, we, we would have had different steps, but God had a number of gradual steps down to get him to where he wanted him to be. We tend to see each downward step as, as a delay. Sometimes we see it as a detour or we're being rerouted, and we don't like that sometimes. But under the providence of God... Each apparent downward step is actually the most direct and necessary step toward the place of God's purpose and appointment in our lives, just as it was for Joseph. And and there was no other route that was going to lead a 17-year-old Hebrew to the throne of Egypt. just wasn't going to happen any other way. No other path would adequately prepare him. And even if there was another path, you wouldn't want a 17-year-old ruling anyway, would you? Well, let me ask you, do you get frustrated by delays in your life? Does God's timing in your life frustrate you at times? <laughs> if you're honest like me, I, can, I get very frustrated with God's timing in my life. But the important thing is to remember... Our delays are God's opportunity to affect our spiritual maturity. God has a work He's doing in our life to prepare us for His purposes. It's the very trying of your faith through these delays that will sometimes produce His work in you. Sometimes God wants to produce patience in us. In fact, that's what God says in James chapter 1, verse 3. 
For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Let me just make a few comments on James 1, verses 3 and 4 here. Notice there's a command. Let steadfastness. That is, that is a command. It's not an option. It's just, you don't get to pick and choose whether you're going to do that. Now you might say, well, why should we allow this to happen? God says we should allow this to happen so that we can be perfect and complete. Now, the perfect and complete in James 1 here literally means that you may have your whole allotment, that you would have every grace, every God-given skill that God intends for you to have for what He intends for you to accomplish. He has a purpose for you to accomplish. So our delays are God's opportunity to complete our preparation for what He wants us to do. Let's think about Joseph here. God delayed Joseph. He he didn't become the second in charge of Egypt as a 17-year-old. And so Joseph was not ready to have this enormous responsibility as a 17-year-old. It would have crushed him. God had to prepare him. How did God do that? Sometimes God takes us through classes. (laughs) And in this case... Joseph went through third-year prison classes in order to be the prime minister of Egypt. I mean, what do we do during these times of seeming delay in our lives? Well, the biblical answer is, wait. God says, wait. Wait? That's, That's the answer to seeming delays? Yeah. Wait on the Lord, the Bible says. Now, please understand, some, some people have misunderstanding on what it, what it means to wait on the Lord. Waiting is not doing nothing, <laughs> okay? It's not just sitting there doing nothing. In fact, I like the way Johnny Erickson Tata, who, by the way, is a quadriplegic, she's learned a few things over these many decades now of being a quadriplegic. I like the way she put it in, in her book, When God Weeps. She said this, I quote Johnny Erickson Tata, Waiting on the Lord is a definite spiritual exercise that focuses your attention, submits your spirit, and teaches your soul to delight in the very presence of God Himself. Choosing to wait on God takes you beyond the immediate problems, the painful circumstances, and gently eases you into the presence of the Lord, end quote. There's someone who's learned. She's had to learn. And she'll admit, struggled. There's been a lot of struggles. But that's the idea of waiting on the Lord. That's the biblical answer for struggling through God's delays. So how do we learn contentment? That's where it comes down to, right? It's an issue of contentment. So how do you learn that? Well, the Apostle Paul learned contentment. He had something to say about that. And so like the Apostle Paul, we learn contentment by uh, by not just getting what we want. That's not going to help you. But by adjusting our longings to match our God-ordained situation. 
Here's what Paul says in Philippians 4.12. Now, I remind you, he's also someone who's writing from prison in Philippians. And he says, I know how to be brought low. And I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Now, notice it's a, it's a learned thing. It doesn't come naturally. You have to learn it. <laughs> and usually, usually it seems like you have to go through prison classes to learn it. Very difficult, very hard, but nevertheless, fruitful. Now, my friends, here's your assignment. I got an assignment for you. During delays, during those times when it, when it seems like, oh, man, I'd like to hurry up and get there, and you're waiting on God, follow Joseph's example. Be content and diligent while actively waiting on the Lord. Follow Joseph's example. May it encourage you in some way, I hope. Timeless truth number six is this, that God employs natural phenomena to affect His purposes in people's hearts. God used natural phenomena to affect His purposes in people's hearts, particularly in the king of Egypt's heart. So the Bible says here in Genesis there were fruitful years. The fruitful years came, they went... Uh, they, they allowed all the grain silos of Egypt to be filled in anticipation of the coming famine. So Joseph was, uh, through, through God's enabling, able to interpret Pharaoh's dreams. Remember, seven years of plenty. So this famine came eventually. And from the biblical narrative perspective, there was a, uh, a primary function for this famine. God wanted to move the chosen family. Remember, Genesis 12 reminds us the chosen family is Abraham's family, who eventually become Israel. God wanted to move the chosen family into Egypt to eventually not just be a family, but to be a chosen nation. How was God going to get them from Canaan to Egypt? Oh, God says, I'll use a famine. What a great idea. <laughs> The famine brings them there for food. Well, that's how God do it. That's how He did it. And by the way, it'd be helpful for us to kind of step back for a moment and get a big picture of what God had to do, what He had to do to actually accomplish this. Well, here's the big picture, my friends. At more than 4,000 miles or 6,600 kilometers long, you need to understand the Nile River is the Earth's longest river. There's a, uh, a picture of it from outer space, uh, the northeast part of Africa. So you need to understand, Egypt's agriculture was utterly dependent on the Nile River. The river was the lifeblood for all of the crops along the Nile floodplain. But what is the Nile's major source? See, God had to do something with the Nile's major source to affect Egypt. And the answer is Lake Victoria. So way down at the bottom, as the, you, you get down there, you eventually you come to Lake Victoria. And so in, in the eastern central part of Africa, uh, between Uganda, Tanzania, there is uh, where you find Lake Victoria. Now, do you understand what's going on here? In order 
to fulfill this specific dream to Pharaoh, God was providentially controlling the weather patterns of central Africa. (laughs) And he's controlling the weather patterns continually for these 14 years. See, there were seven good years and seven bad years. So God's controlling the weather patterns for 14 years. So not only did, did God do this over Egypt and Canaan and the surrounding nations, but all the way down into central Africa, 6,600 kilometers away. And as Genesis 42 opens, the focus of the story turns from Joseph in Egypt to what is happening to Joseph's family back in Canaan. And likewise, the lessons of providence are shifting from Joseph to that of his family as well. God wants to do a work in Joseph's family as well. So look at chapter 42, verse 1. Chapter 42, verse 1. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Behold, I have heard there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there, that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt, but Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. So that's how God gets them there to start with. And there is, by the way, an unbiblical belief that God unfailingly blesses His children with material abundance. (laughs) Right? Come to Christ, and you're going to be wealthy. You're going to have good health all the time. All good stuff's going to come your way. Right? Well, the lessons of providence here show us that's not always the case. Here's one biblical example among many that show that this is certainly not the case. So, My friends, please don't fall for the lie of the preacher who says uh, that godliness is the means to great gain in your life, to material gain in your life. See, the truth is found in the next principle of providence here. Number seven, God may allow His own people to suffer need. God may allow you to suffer need. We don't like this principle. I don't like it. You think about it. Famine and starvation are very serious threats. Very serious threats. But there are even more important issues at stake here. What is God trying to do? God often uses material crisis in our life to get our attention so that He can then redirect our attention to Something more important. Usually it's the spiritual needs. Spiritual needs are more important than the physical. And this is precisely what God did with Joseph's brothers. For 20 years, the brothers had tried to quiet their noisy souls, but God is awakening their conscience. And every time some distressing event arose, the brothers instantly attributed it to God's judgment. See, they recognized their sin, their unresolved sin, 
that they had committed against their brother Joseph. Notice what they say here in verse 18. Chapter 42, verse 18. God is working on them. Look, Because look what verse 18 says. On the third day, Joseph said to them, so Joseph meets his brothers in Egypt. He says, do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody, and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households, and bring your youngest brother to me. So your words will be verified, and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us, and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept. And he returned to them and spoke to them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. He said to his brothers, My money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At at this their hearts failed them, and they turned trembling to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? So did you notice several times they they, they feel like God's judging them for their unresolved sin? And that brings to us another timeless principle to learn, that God causes us to face the consequences of our sin. What did God do here? Well, God led these brothers to do three things. Three things. Notice, number one, to identify the deed that actually triggered their predicament. They recognized it was their deed that caused what they thought maybe Joseph had died or blood was on their hands. And number two, acknowledge that God was dealing with them and then confess their sin, confess the sin of their deed. They recognized they did this. They were guilty. So God caused them to face the consequences of their sin. And sometimes God can bring difficulty into our life, cause us to face our own guilt. I hope you see that as a healthy thing, as a good thing. Because there are many times we need to face our guilt. Principle number nine is this, that God can affect total transformation of character, even though it can be many, many years down the road. So the mark of genuine repentance is not merely just an admission of guilt, but repentance is, well, literally, of course, a change of mind in regard to our sin. It's a willingness to submit to even the the consequences of our sin, to 
to submit to the consequences that God deems appropriate for our sin. See, Joseph's brothers were showing this kind of willingness here. It's showing a, a true repentance on their part. Now, perhaps most amazing is Judah's willingness to take Benjamin's place as a slave in Egypt here. Look, look what happens in chapter 44, verse 33. This is showing a genuine repentance. Chapter 44, verse 33. The Bible says, Now therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. So he's pleading. Please don't take my brother Benjamin. And so this this is showing a, a dramatic, supernatural transformation that has taken place in the hearts of Joseph's brothers. As I kind of wrap this up, I want to quickly come to some key passages here in the book of Genesis. These are some clear statements about God's providence. Look at chapter 45, verse 4. Chapter 45, verse 4. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to, pre- to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years. And there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh, and Lord of all his house, and ruler over all the land of Egypt. As you can see, Joseph firmly believes in God's providence. He knows who's in control of what's going on here. Did you notice there was particular phrases that shows this for example joseph says god sent me god made me he he knows who is the subject of what's happening here of all these events joseph had a good understanding of the providence of god and so despite the fact he didn't even have a bible nevertheless he believed in a sovereign god who reigns supreme over all events that take place And as if that's not clear enough, look at chapter 50. Look what Joseph says here in chapter 50. Verse 15. Genesis 50, verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph, saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. 
But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Did you notice what Joseph believes about God? Even the wicked acts committed by wicked sinners are still accomplishing God's purposes. And Joseph believed this, firmly believed this. He had the ability and the power to take his brother's lives, to bring justice in his eyes upon them, to get revenge. He could have. He had the power and ability to do so. But he believed that even wicked acts committed against him were still in God's purposes, accomplishing God's good work. That's what he believed. And that is a a wonderful, timeless principle that we can learn and should learn. God is working in our life, in other people's lives, Sometimes it may not go the way you had planned, but he's still at work accomplishing his good purposes. Now it's interesting how the psalmist kind of catches this truth. There is a psalm that mentions Joseph. Did you know that? Let me just show you the psalm here. It's uh, it's on the screen. Psalm 105, verse 16 says this. Notice God's sovereignty here. As it says, when he, that's referring to God, summoned a famine on the land and broke all supply of bread, he had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph. Now, who did the sending? What does Psalm, Psalm says? God is the one sending Joseph. God sends Joseph ahead. The Psalm goes on to say, who was sold as a slave? His feet were hurt with fetters, his neck was put in a collar of iron until what he had said came to pass. The word of the Lord tested him. So my friends, did Joseph's dreams come true? Absolutely. The word of the Lord was tested, it was tried, and it was true. Was Joseph's treatment right? Was it? You'd say, man, was that fair? I mean, what would be your natural reaction to this kind of hatred, to this kind of betrayal, to this affliction? How would you feel if your brothers did this to you? How would you feel if you believe God did this to you? So my friend, if you ever feel unfairly treated, if you ever feel unjustly criticized by people, If you ever feel wrongly accused by people, you feel like you have been forgotten by people, then may I suggest look to Pharaoh. Not sorry, not Pharaoh. Look 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 past Pharaoh. Look to Joseph. Look to the God who is working in Joseph. Measure response to Joseph, and if that doesn't help then you need to go beyond Joseph and you need to look to Jesus. Was Jesus unjustly treated? 
Was Jesus unjustly criticized? Was Jesus forgotten? Was Jesus wrongly accused? Absolutely. And so the author of Hebrews in chapter 12 says, you need to lay aside your weight and and that sin which clings to you and you need to run. Run the race that God has given to you, but as you run, do it with endurance. And as you're running with endurance, the only way you can do that properly is by looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. May I remind you, the author of Hebrews says here, how did Jesus run his race? Well, the Bible says here, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him. That's what Hebrews says. I've underlined it for you. Consider Jesus. If Joseph doesn't do it for you, then look to Jesus. Consider Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. When you're tempted to be faint-hearted, to grow weary, to give up and say, what's the point? I don't like what these people are doing to me, what they're saying about me. It's unfair, it's unjust, it's wrong. It might be. It may be. It may be. But an attitude, an attitude I have learned through during those moments when I'm getting the unjust treatment, the unfair criticism, wrong accusations, one thing that has helped me besides Joseph and Jesus is to have the right perspective on myself. The perspective is when someone slanders me and says some really nasty things about me, it's helpful for me to remember I'm the worst sinner I know, and they could actually say worse things. They could actually say a lot worse things than they actually did say. They could say true things that were worse than what they just said. So, who's really in charge? Oh, my friends, if you believe God's in charge, it's going to change your whole perspective. Look to Joseph. Look to others like the Apostle Paul. Look to the martyrs. Look to Jesus to find rest for your weary soul. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for the the great example here of Joseph. We're thankful for your providential hand working throughout his life, guiding and governing and directing to where you wanted him to be to accomplish your purposes. And so may we be encouraged by how you did this. May we be encouraged by the truth that you are in charge and you do reign supreme over all of your creation and even the weather, as we've seen here, still accomplishing your purposes. So may these truths really transform us, change us from the inside out. May we draw near to Christ, look to Christ, consider Him and the others that we've seen here in the Scriptures for the the strength that we need to go on since life is not perfect. It's not always easy. 
May we recognize that you are in control. May you, you enable us to accomplish your purposes, to bring you honor and glory through these, the sufferings and the trials and the afflictions you take us through. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.